Let's talk hoops. Let's talk crossovers. Let's talk dimes. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk rumors. Let's talk opinions. Let's talk truth. Let's talk future. Let's talk present. Let's talk past. Fundamentals and flash. Me running the flow. Stango running the show like a young Steve Nash. I'd like to welcome all of you to the Great Point Podcast. This is the Great Point Podcast. I'm Adam Stanko. Unbelievably thrilled for today's show. Keon Dooling played in the NBA for over a decade. He was a star at Missouri. Lottery pick. Played with the Clippers, the Heat, Magic, Nets, Bucks, Celtics, Grizzlies. Played in some critical playoff games. He's now a life coach, an author, has his own foundation, and he's even started his own music company. He's also a member of the NBPA, where he mentors other NBA players. And most of all, he has an incredibly inspirational story to tell. Keon, thanks for joining me today. My friend, thank you for having me. And that introduction right there, you know, I'm expecting an invoice at the end of this conversation with that introduction like that, because you're working for me, baby. You know, I always hear that. I always hear that. Maybe I'm going to have to tone it down a little bit. But I, I think that you're, you're certainly worthy and your story is, is really incredible. So I wanted to get to it and I wanted to start with a specific period of, of your life. Let's go back to 2012. You played in Game 6, Eastern Conference Finals. You're a member of the Boston Celtics at the time. Everyone remembers the Ray Allen, KG, Paul Pierce squad. Doc Rivers is the coach, and you're part of what's been called the LeBron coronation game when he went for 45. What was that performance like to watch? Wow, it was epic. You know, um, you know, you saw you saw a guy really starting to, you know, come into his own. Um, I guess the world recognized him coming into his own. I mean, he's always been a phenomenal player. Um, but you know, I think there's a moment you know, that superstar players have where they just, you know, kind of um, find themselves in that uh, zone. And I think he, you know, was able to get to a, a, a zone of focusness. And once you can kind of get to that zone for the first time, I think it's easier to tap back into that zone. And so, um, you know, it was a phenomenal performance. He would not be denied. It's not like we didn't play him well and play him hard. We just couldn't stop him, and um, yeah, it was a it was a great moment for our game. I think our great our game got better and bigger because of that performance by LeBron. And this was the Celtics team, obviously, with high hopes that year of, of winning an NBA title. So, after that performance takes place, what what was the team saying about about what he had done on that day? Well, look, you can't you know you got to give credit when credit is due, um, but you know we weren't in awe. I mean, he didn't do anything that, you know, us as NBA players, we hold him at a very high standard. Um, we know how great he is, even though the media sometimes, you know, picks his game apart, but we play against him. And so we know how great LeBron is as, an, as, as a basketball player. But we still felt like we had an opportunity to go back down to Boston, excuse me, down to Miami and win the game. And um, I really believe, you know, we did enough to win that game. I think that, you know, the officials, I can say officials, now because I'm not, you know, a player, so they can't find me. <laughs> but I really think the officials, uh, if you look at the fouls during that game, I think the officials really, you know what I mean, um, you know, had a slant on it, in my opinion, <laughs> straight up. You can say that. You can say that now. Yeah, You're I can get for it, so I can say That's that. That's yeah. right. So the summer passes, 
and during that time, I assume that your expectations are incredibly high for the next year. Uh, what what were your expectations for that next season after the loss in Game Seven? Well, you know, I was excited. You know, I know I wanted to come back and re-sign with the Celtics. Um, I had some contract opportunities that you know would pay me more money, um, but I waited around for the Celtics because I really, you know, um, enjoy playing for Doc. I really, you know, admired KG, Ray, and Paul, and Rondo, and I enjoyed being around them. And I really, you know, just enjoyed the Boston area and the way that the fans support you and respect and appreciate the game. So I was looking forward to coming back and, you know, making another run at it. So all that said leads me to September of 2012. You're in Seattle for a charity event with Avery Bradley. You're one of your favorite steakhouses in Seattle. Can you take me through what happened that night? Yeah, I can go back to that place. Yeah, we uh, I, I, I do some work with this foundation called the Game Time Foundation. I'm the ambassador. And, um, you know, what we do is we go around to impoverished neighborhoods and we bring in, uh, food, goods, materials, you know, gifts, um, things to bring motivation and, and tangible goods that people can use, especially people, you know, from impoverished communities. And so after the event, we always go out to celebrate, to kind of, you know, uh, take a load off and just relax and enjoy one another. And so I go to the restroom um, simply to urinate, simply to go pee, simply to do number one. And I saw a guy in the bathroom who seemed to be intoxicated, and he was going from urinal to urinal as far as his aim. He was in, he was in at one but aiming at the other and then coming back. So I said, oh, my goodness. Let me go in the stall because this guy is uh, tripping. And if any of that gets mm-hmm. on me, it's going to be some problems. And so I decided to go in the stall. As I'm in the stall and I'm handling my business, um, the guy comes and grips my butt while I'm peeing. And, um, <laughs> you know, for me, it was, you know, at the time I was in peak condition. I was about 205 pounds, um, you know, about two weeks away from training camp. So you're at your best. And, you know, that was the moment that really changed my life, you know, when that guy grabbed my butt like that while I was doing number one. Changed my life forever. Um, I, I felt anger that I had never felt in my life before, and it was very hard to come back from that place of anger. Can you tell me how it changed your life? Yeah, it changed my life because uh, I think one of the things that it did is it was a trigger that unlocked some blocked-out memories of my molestation as a child. And, you know, later that night when I got back, well, first of all, let me talk about the anger outburst. You know, I mm-hmm. never felt angry, anger like that as an adult male. You know, I have prided myself on being poised and disciplined and, you know what I mean, um, not mm-hmm. allowing my emotions to get the best of me. And so um, I had never reached that point of anger in my life as an adult male. And it boiled over, and I, I, I really feel like, you know, uh, my top blew. For a second, I lost it emotionally, you know, and I remember choking the guy and almost, you know, uh, you know, almost taking the guy out. You know, I was so angry and so strong from my anger that I almost, you know, I really choked the guy. If it wasn't for one of my buddies pulling, pulling me off of him, you know, we probably would be having this conversation in a different setting. Mm-hmm. Um, but he pulled me off of him and I, you know, and I, I kind of, you know, start doing my breathing techniques and. You know, and I started coming back to myself, but, you know, I could not get the, I couldn't shake the anger. 
And so I think the anger opened up the opportunity for my memory to come back um, and remember some of the things that happened to me. I was asking myself, man, why did I get so angry? Why did I get so mad? I never I never lost my composure like that. I've been disrespected. I've been called names. I've been hurt. I've been, you know, I've gone through different things, but I never lost it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in a moment like that. And, you know, th- later that night, all these memories and flashbacks start coming back. And my job as a macho man was to push them down and put them back in place where they were, where they were at the time I thought they belonged. And so I started trying to compress those feelings back down, but you know, I couldn't. And that led me to PTSD, which I did not know anything about. I wasn't familiar with, I didn't know I was a candidate for it. And I started to experience post-traumatic stress disorder. And so I couldn't slow my thoughts down. And that ultimately led me to retire from the game and, get away and go hide because I wasn't strong enough to deal with uh, all the emotions that kind of came out. So I just wanted to hide. So I decided to walk away from the game, retire, give a million dollars back and, um, you know, just, just hide, you know, I wasn't ready to face it. I couldn't face it. I didn't know what to deal with. I just knew I needed help. And so uh, about a week or two after that, after, uh, you know, after going through all that suffering from PTSD, now at the time I didn't know what it was all about. Um, I just knew that I was in bad shape. So I had to check myself into a mental institution. I spent four days there. And, um, you know, and, and one thing led to another. But, uh, you know, it was, it was the moment that changed my life because I wouldn't be doing the work that I'm doing now um, if I had not have gone through that moment. You, on that night, spoke to your wife, from what I read, Natasha? Yeah. And this is the first person that you ever opened up to about what had happened in your childhood. Can you tell me about that? No. So, yeah. So initially I didn't tell her, um, you know, about the visions and the things that had came back, you know, what happened in my past. I didn't tell her about my molestation until I was in the mental institution and I really had to do some soul searching. Mm. And so um, I had to have that tough conversation with her one morning um, when she came in, when I, when I, you know, when I really had to ask myself, how did I get here? Like, KD, man, you have done everything right, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. in your life. And at 32 years old, you you are in a mental institution, bro, dealing with all this emotional trauma. So I couldn't hide it anymore. I had to be honest. And I had to face this pain um, because it, it, it almost took me out. And so I told her and I had that conversation with her. And I said, hey, look, babe. You know, I got to be honest with you, you know, um, I hope you don't look at me as less than a man or I hope you don't, you know, uh, look at me a certain type way. But I was molested when I was young um, and it happened, you know, from a teenage boy. And I remember breaking down crying and, you know, I remember her crying about it. And she was crying because I didn't give her an opportunity to be there for me. Like, Why didn't you tell me, baby? Like, we've been together since we were 16 like, how could you not tell me? And she did And she said, I, I don't look at you less than a man. I love you. I'm going to help you get through this. Um, but why couldn't you tell me? She was so hurt that I didn't tell her because she wanted to be there for me to help me heal. And I didn't give her that opportunity. So it was a, it was a, um, it was a transformational moment in my life, to be honest with you. How do you think you found the courage to tell her what had happened to you? Well, listen, I tell you, you know, when you're in the bottom floor of a mental institution, I tell you, man, it's like hell on earth. And if you really want to, you know, uh, get from out of that place, you have to be real with yourself. You have to, you know, evaluate your life. 
You have to evaluate what you've been through. To evaluate what's uh, stopping you from existing the way that you want to exist. And so if I would not have at that moment embraced what I went through, how could I allow healing to come in? I was so broken that I needed healing to come in. And so you couldn't lie about it. You couldn't push it back under the rug. You had to face it boldly. And that's what I that's that's the decision that I, I chose to make. I, I decided to fight it and recover and um be a voice for the voiceless because so many men suffer in silence when they go through situations like this. Well, I admire your courage. I mean, that almost goes without saying hearing this, and I know anyone that is going to hear this is going to feel the exact same way that I that I do. And I ask this because of all these people that are listening and have family members who, who have dealt with all these things. Can you can you tell me in, in your own words what did happen to you when you were when you were young? Yeah, I write about it in my book. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I actually, you know, when I was writing the book, I went to, I went back to the spot um, where I was molested at in order to, you know, uh, feel the emotions of that moment, to relive it and to write it in an authentic way. Um, and so it's very simple. It was a rainy day in South Florida. Yeah, right. Rain in South Florida. Yeah, <laughs> they go together in the summertime. And so uh, it started to rain. And so we and my, me and one of my buddies, well, we ran to one of my brother's friend's house. You know, he's somebody who's one of my brother's good friends. And, um, you know, he was like, you know, so we decided to go to his house because, you know, he lived very close to the park that we all played. And so, um, you know, he decided to put some porn, some pornography on at the moment. Now, keep in mind, we're seven, eight years old at the time. And so um, that was his gateway of, of trying to get us in a promiscuous way, I guess. That was his courting process or his betting process or whatever you want to call it. And he basically, you know, put porn on and, you know, it came to a scene where he was like, you know, uh, I could do that. And he basically, you know, proceeded to, um, you know, make us do that. And, you know, that's that's really as far as I'm, I'm willing to take it at this moment. You know, I, w- I, I really don't want to go farther than that. Um, but that's really in the, in a nutshell what happened. And that's the, that's where I got molested at at that time. Incredibly courageous of you to, to be talking about this. And, and I appreciate you coming on here and speaking about this. One thing that I had read that you had said was that basketball was something that made you feel dominant. And when you dunked for the first time in the ninth grade, uh, you felt invincible. Can you tell me how basketball was empowering to you? Yeah, I don't think basketball made me invincible. I think basketball was an outlet for me. Um, I played basketball um, when I was happy. I played basketball when I was sad. You know, I built my friendships and my bonds, you know, because, you know, through basketball. And so it was a place where I could go and, um, play some of that negative energy that I felt in and channel it in a positive way. And yeah, it did feel good to, you know, athletically conquer some barriers that I had been reaching for. Um, also, poverty is something that inspired me to play basketball as well. You know, you look around your surroundings and there's not many ways out of the hood. And I knew at an early age, basketball was a way for me to get out of the hood. And so I, I, I took it very seriously. I knew that was going to be a recipe for me to get out of the hood. And so it was more than just a healing mechanism. It was also um, an opportunity for me to change the landscape of my family's life. Well, you go on to become the big star, uh, Dillard High School in Florida. 
play with a uh, future Missouri t- teammate, outstanding player, Clarence Gilbert. And you mm-hmm. played against you played against Miami High and faced off against Udonis Haslam and Steve Blake in a game. All yeah. four of you were on the court at that time. What do you remember about yeah. that? Well, man, I mean, I remember that game being sold out. Um, I remember them beating us like we stole something from them. <laughs> um, <laughs> Frank Martin was the coach of that team. He's actually the head coach at South University of South Carolina right now. You know, uh, he was a great coach then. He's a great coach now. I'm very proud of him. Andre Johnson, um, the wide receiver, was on that team. I mean, it was about it was about eight college players, D1 players, on that court for that game. Yeah, so it was amazing games, but we lost miserably, for sure. Your high school career finishes up. You end up at Missouri playing for Norm Stewart as, as a freshman. What do you remember about playing for Norm Stewart? You know what, I enjoyed, like, looking back at it, I really enjoyed the lessons that I learned from Norm. I think when I was in it, it was a lot more difficult. Um, Norm was old school. Um, Norm was tough. Um, Norm, you know, um, you know, in my opinion, didn't give me the, the best opportunity to showcase my skills. Mm-hmm. So me and, me and Norm butted heads, but I always respected him. Um and, and, and really appreciate it, you know, the lessons that I learned under his tutelage. That's freshman year, playing freshman for the great Norm Stewart. But then there's a coaching right. change, and right. Quinn Snyder comes in for your, for your sophomore year. How was that right. adjustment considering, you know, Coach Snyder didn't recruit you to Missouri? Yeah, no, it was a blessing for me. You know, um, Quinn was younger. He was more relatable. Um, he had watched me play in high school, so he thought I had some talent. You know, my game was coming into – I was coming into my own as far as my game. I had played on the USA team. and um, We won a gold medal one year and won a silver medal the next year. So I was feeling real good. It was a great, great shift for me. Quinn was young. He was hungry. And he gave me the ball at the end of the day. You know, <laughs> and when a coach empowers you and gives you the ball, you know what I mean, you really appreciate him, you know, and, and how do I say it? I really appreciated the fact that, you know, he gave me the basketball and trusted me to make good decisions and be a leader. So I, I really appreciate Quinn for pouring into me at that time in my life. Well, it certainly seemed like at that time in your life, uh, nationally, you started to get in, an incredible amount of recognition. Certainly as a sophomore, people recognized the talent that you had outside the conference. It became this huge deal about how good Keon Dueling was. But you were also playing with some pretty good teammates, Kareem Rush, obviously Gilbert's yeah. on that team, and uh, yeah. the current president of the Denver Nuggets. Yeah, Josh Kroenke. Josh mm-hmm. Kroenke. You know, I, man, I, I'm telling you, man, I have been so fortunate in my life. You know, at 17, 18 years old, I got a lot of, t- I got a chance to spend, you know, time in a billionaire's home. Stan Kroenke was, you know, at our practices and at our games and, you know, got to, ha- got to spend some individual time with him. And so it shifted, you know, it shifted my perspective on life because, you know, um, you know, you only can, you know, reach for what you know. And, you know, to see a billionaire and see the work ethic and the, the preparation and the discipline that he had, it really, you know, um, inspired me at a very young age. One thing that I've noticed through the years, whether it's uh, talking to NBA players or people who have a certain level of fame or a certain level of, of money, isn't how remarkable they all seem to be, but how normal they seem to be. Yeah. When you talk yeah. about going into a billionaire's home, how did you find that to be the case? 
you know what, man? It was uh, it felt like a home. You know, it was a two parent household. Um, you know, they prided themselves on being normal. Um, and so it was just inspiration for me. Look, I'm from the hood. You know, I come from very humble beginnings. My parents worked hard. My mom was an educator. My father was a business owner. Um, but the surroundings where they, where we lived, you know, it was it's the hood at the end of the day. And so to you know to see something other than that is really inspiring. Um, it really lets you know that hey man, you know maybe there is something out here for me. Um, that I can accomplish in my lifetime if I work hard enough, if I get the right opportunity um, to showcase my talent. And so, yeah, it was very inspirational. It was awesome. But, yeah, that billionaires are extremely normal in a sense. You know, um, I think that they, 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 they're ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And there's five letters that separate, you know, ordinary people from extraordinary people, and that's the extra. And I think that what happens is that, you know, yeah, some of it is family pedigree and some of it is inheritance, but, you know, a lot of, you know, nowadays there's a lot of self-made people who do extremely well for themselves, first generational, and this it's, expiring, it's inspiring for me, for sure. Was it during that time that you first recognized that you could be an NBA player? Uh, no. <laughs> I don't think that was the time. I think, you know, the first time I, I, I thought, well, the first time I heard I could be an NBA player was from a prophet um, at 10 years old when he basically told me that, you know, spoke all these different things in my life. You know, at 10 years old, he told me that I'd be taller than everybody in my family. He told me that, you know, I'll, I'll achieve all my basketball goals and that God is not just using me to play basketball, but he's also using me um, as a vessel and a vehicle, you know what I mean, to do his work. And so uh, at 10 years old, he told me that, and I told him, uh, yeah, I know. I know I'm going all the way. But from a, but from a, from a, you know, from an unspiritual standpoint, I think the first time that I thought that I had a chance to go to the NBA was when I think I was around 16, 17 years old. You know, my athleticism took off and my game just kind of took off and, you know, I was I went to sleep one night jumping one way, and I woke up the next day windmilling and taking off like you know what I mean from far distances, and it just kind of like it's not. I'm not saying that it happened overnight because I worked towards mm -hmm. it, but something mm -hmm. changed in one day for me, and so I just thank God for you know what I mean depositing that talent in me. I I just gotta backtrack for a second. At ten years old, at ten years old, uh, a prophet tells you that that essentially you're going to be this vessel uh, and do great things, which obviously has, has come true. How did this come about? Who was this person? Well, this was Pastor True. Um, he was, he was um, a prophet, a pastor down in South Florida. Um, my family is a very faith-filled family. Um, we're devout Christians. Um, and, you know, it's a part of, you know, I've seen a lot of spiritual miracles. Um, in my lifetime, I've seen people, you know, you know, be demon possessed and be exorcist. I've seen people, you know what I mean, be on their deathbed and be healed. I've seen people, you know what I mean, like you know, be in some bad shape and and, and the Lord really deliver them. But I, I, I you know, I, I never, you know, um, thought that, you know, what I'm saying it could happen to me, you know. And so I've seen some some amazing spiritual spiritual gifts um, in my lifetime, and I'm telling you, man, it's 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 just my testimony. Some people might believe it. Some people may not, but it's just my testimony.
all of these athletic gifts that you have, you're this incredible defensive player. You're able to lead a team as a pure point guard. Uh, obviously, later in your NBA career, you kept getting better and better from beyond the three-point line. But this explosive, quick guard, great feet, uh, the blow-by ability as, as we refer to it. So you have your two-year Missouri career. When did you decide during that second year that you were going to declare for the NBA draft? Well, you know, the Internet was starting to get popular around that time. And um, they had NBADraft.net. Um, they had all these mock drafts. And lo and behold, I was in the top ten. And so I started getting, you know, uh, recognition. I started, you know what I mean? Like, I think I was the last one to really know how good I was because I always felt like I was an underdog. So I never saw myself as, like, being this great player. I always felt like, felt like I had to prove, like, nobody's respecting me. Um, but, but when, when I saw myself, you know, getting up there and I saw, you know, agents and scouts starting to come to all the games, you know what I mean? I knew that, that, that it was, you know, getting close to that time where I had an opportunity to strike while the iron was hot. You make the decision, you're going to declare for the 2000 NBA draft. Now, where did you watch the draft from? Well, I watched the draft from a hotel room in Fort Lauderdale in my hometown. I didn't get in, invited to the draft um, because, you know, the, the the league probably thought that, you know what I mean, I was a high-risk player and I may be in the green room for a long time. So um, so I missed out on that experience. I didn't get to walk across the stage and shake David Stern's hand and, you know, kind of get to sit in the green room. Um, but I did get a chance to celebrate that moment with my family and my community and my friends. And um, one of the best pictures I have is, you know, when they called my name, I just remember, you know, the newspaper took a picture of me and my father hugging. My father passed away. And I just remember crying. I just remember crying because, um, you know, I achieved my goals and I, you know, the Lord used me to change the way that my family existence is. For those of us that weren't lottery picks, what's that like to hear your name called during the NBA draft? You know, um, I, I literally broke out in, into tears. I cried. I cried so hard, you know, and that was the first time in my life that I cried tears of joy. You know, usually when, when I cried, it was either from losing a relative or pain or, you know what I mean, or, or, or despair from, you know, maybe having the air conditioned off or maybe not having enough to eat. Um, but this was the first time in my life that I had uh, tears of joy because I knew that I was going to be able to give my family um, a better existence. Well, the one thing you did avoid in not being at the draft is that awkward moment where you end up as a traded player. Uh, So you're drafted number 10 by the Magic and then traded with Corey Maggette, Derek Strong, and Cash to the Clippers for a future first-round pick, which apparently didn't even get turned around until 2006. Do you know who the player was that ended up being drafted in in the spot for you? No, uh-uh. I have no idea. I have no idea who, who they got on the back end. Um, I'll tell you who it is. It was Marcus Williams of UConn. Turned out to be the pick that he, he turned out to be the guy that was turned around for you in that in that draft. It was six years later, which is really remarkable uh-huh. when you think about it. How about that? And then what did they do to him? They shipped him to New Jersey. <laughs> yep, exactly, exactly. So you're in, so you're drafted by the Clippers. And that draft was was pretty unique because you had Darius Miles go number three, you go number 10, and then Quentin Richardson also drafted by the Clippers at number 18. Uh, there's that iconic photo of you guys holding up 
your Clipper jerseys. What was it like to start the uh, this franchise new beginning with those guys? It was unbelievable. You know, um, we were the young guns. We were young. We were hungry. Um, unfortunately, at that time, the Clippers program really sucked. You know, the facility sucked. You know, the coaching staffs were, you know what I mean, not the best. The strength and conditioning coaches weren't the best at that time. And so they weren't able to develop us, you know, all of us, you know, in the way that, you know, they can develop talent now. Um, but it was fun, man. We, uh, we, we played video games. We went out to eat. Uh, we, we spent a lot of time having fun. We partied together. Um, it was awesome, but I, I, do, I do believe that if we would have got drafted to, to another franchise at the time, we would have all been better off because the Clippers franchise at that time was very, 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 very terrible. You say that, and of course the Clippers at that time were a running joke to, to the basketball world. But that being said, how do you recognize that you know the coaching staff isn't as good as other coaching staffs and the training staff or the the weight room well when i went to miami the next year and i got you know a rude awakening um you have to have something to compare it to um and to to know if something is good bad or indifferent you know if you don't have anything to compare it to then you know what i mean you only can believe what you see and so i can look back objectively now and say Mm -hmm. that hey we practice in south central la Hey, we couldn't stay. We couldn't come to the gym at night if we needed to. Hey, we didn't get meals afterwards. Hey, we didn't have our own weight room. And so, like, you know, when you're trying to develop young talent, you know, especially immature talent, um, without that, that infrastructure support, um, you know what I mean? You don't give them the best chance to have success. And you talk about that young talent. Darius Miles is a guy that I think it's been an enigma for a lot of NBA fans. You know, we saw the kind of talent that he had coming out of St. Louis, out of high school, superstar player. It seemed like the world was his on an NBA stage. And you referenced the fact that if you guys had gone to different teams, you would have developed in a different way. What do you think the potential was for Darius Miles had he gone somewhere else? Well, no, I think Darius's talent manifested. Um, you know, he, he was very successful early in his career. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he was very successful. He got an e- extremely huge first contract. Like, a, I think it was like a, a $50 million plus dollar contract, something like that. Um, so he, he developed. He got a chance to play. He was able to develop. I think what Darius fell short is the knee injury. He had a pretty much microfracture surgery. And so that's a part of it. Like, we're in the hurt business at the end of the day. And if your body goes, if your wheels go, um, you know, it's just nothing you can necessarily do about that. But I thought that he was, you know, he had a very solid career, um, but it probably ended prematurely because of the knee injury. Was there anything you saw from him that people don't understand how talented he was? Yeah. I mean, you know, he was super talented, man. I thought, I thought he had potential to be, to be like, you know, a perennial all-star. Um, but like I said, you know, even though he was talented, talent can only get you so far. You have to get skills. You have to get development. You have to learn the game. And I don't think that the infrastructure was in place at the time. It's not the same team. We're not talking about the new Clippers. We're talking about the old Clippers. Um, at the time, that infrastructure just wasn't in place. After spending four years with the Clippers, you'd play for Alvin Gentry, Dennis Johnson for a stretch, Mike Dunleavy. You go to the Heat, 
And now you're being coached by Stan Van Gundy. The team in 2004, 2005 wins 59 games and you lose in the Eastern Conference Finals to the Pistons. What can you tell me about playing with Shaq and D. Wade, Eddie Jones, and that whole crew? Unbelievable, man. Unbelievable. You know, the lessons that I learned in Miami, I took with me the rest of my career. And I was able to, whether the organization was good, bad, or indifferent, I was able to, you know, bring the same kind of work ethic, the same kind of discipline, the same kind of um, study habits that I learned in Miami. Miami is where I became a professional. It was basically my rookie year. Eddie Jones is a Fort Lauderdale, uh, is a Pompano kid, about twenty minutes, uh, about fifteen minutes from Fort Lauderdale. So he took me under his wing, taught me how to dress, taught me how to um, navigate, taught me how to show up early, taught me how to commit to the game, taught me what restaurants to go to. Hmm. And so, um, you know, Miami really changed my life. You know, Stan Van Gundy pushed me every day, he challenged me every day. Um, Pat Riley poured into me um, when I would get a chance to encounter him. Um, Eric Spolster was kind of assigned to the guards. And so, you know, he showed me how to study film and how to break down film. And, you know, he challenged my basketball IQ. And so I got better. Um, I became a better student of the game. I became, you know, um, more well-studied. Um, and then they had two assistant coaches at the time, Bimbo Coles and Keith Askins. And mm-hmm. um, they, they, they just, you know, challenged me every day, put toughness in me every day. And um, I'm always grateful for that Heat organization for that season that I had with them because they poured into me and I was and I received it and I went on to make a lot more money after that. So I'm always grateful for that. We hear players talk all the time about coaches pushing them. And you said Van Gundy did that for you in Miami. When you say that specifically with Van Gundy in that situation, what are you specifically referring to? What types of things did he do to, to push you? Well, so, you know, um, he told me that, you know, because initially I wasn't in the rotation and I was all upset and I was sad and I was saying I'm, I'm killing people in practice. <laughs> and, you know, he had an open door policy and, he you know, he kept saying that the team needs energy, the team needs energy. And so I was like, you know, saying every day I'm bringing energy in practice, you know what I mean? He, you know, and he just challenged me. He just said, like, look, it's probably not fair that you're not playing, but I don't need to see you complaining or pouting. I need to see you working. I need to see you in the gym. You know what I mean? You need to make sure you slow down. You need to learn the point guard position. You need to make sure you, you know, he just taught me. He taught me. He poured into me. And I was receptive, and he appreciated that. And so because I was receptive to doing the job, you know, I found my way into the rotation, and I was a key contributor, not necessarily key, but I contributed um, to our success. And so I always appreciate that fact that he would be, you know, honest and transparent. Um, I always appreciate the fact that he would challenge me to continue to, you know, work on my body, work on my game, work on the mental side of it. And so Stan Van Gundy, you know, and Doc Rivers are probably the two most influential coaches of my career as far as an NBA standpoint. And so I will still to this day run through a wall for those guys. Mm-hmm. Still to this day, those are the only two coaches that I would run through a wall for that I play for. Do you have a favorite Shaq story? Um, no, I don't, man. You know, I think every day was equally as fun with Shaq, you know, um, you know, the charisma, um, the character that he is, the, 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 the brainiac that he is, it was just awesome. And, um, I just appreciate, you know, him for, you know, always, you know, respecting me, um, always acknowledging me, um, and just, you know, allowing me to, you know what I mean? Ride his coattail for some of the success that I had because, you know, playing with Shaq definitely helped me get paid. 
<laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, you know, and he always would say that. You play with me, you will get paid. That's all you got to do is just do what I tell you to do, and you'll get paid. I did what Shaq told me to do. I got paid. You did get paid. So I did all right. Did all right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you had you, you did very well on on your own as as well. A uh, little self deprecating there. So you, so you finish up with the Heat, move on to the Magic, and the interesting thing to me when you get to the Magic is. You play for Brian Hill your your first couple of years, and it seems like the Pistons are this thorn in your side. When I was going back and looking at, at your career, because in yeah. because in Miami you had lost in the Eastern Conference Finals in a Game Seven to the Pistons. In two thousand seven, mm-hmm. you lose in the first round playoffs to the Pistons, and mm-hmm. then in two thousand eight, with Stan Van Gundy mm-hmm. as your coach again, you lose in the Eastern Conference semis to the Pistons. Deja vu for mm-hmm. you there. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> absolutely. You know, I, you know, Detroit was such a well-rounded time. They really kind of, you know, was always, you know, one of the top two, top three teams in the East. And um, yeah, man, they, 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 they pretty much owned me. Um, you know, I, I could not beat the Pistons. And, um, you know, we had a great chance when I was in Miami, you know, we went down to the wire. We were, up, I think four points, like, you know, two, three minutes to go. And, um, you know, they just stayed the course and they were able to, you know, get us that year. And, um, yeah, the Pistons have always been a thorn in my side. Really incredible. That that Through those three years that you spent with the Magic, you were playing with Dwight Howard, Steve Francis, Haydu Turkoglu, Grant Hill, Jameer Nelson, Richard Lewis. That was sort of the emergence of the Magic during that time. What was it like to feel that momentum sort of build from your first year winning 36 games to, you know, 2007, 2008, you won 52 games. How does that yeah. work? You know what? I think, you know, um, I think too often, you know, NBA teams uh, lose sight of developing talent and developing continuity between a team. And, you know, uh, we got to that point where we started slow and, you know, Dwight was young. Of course, you know, they continued to develop him and Jameer. We got some pieces. And we were a really, really good team. And, you know, a lot of times when you, you're a very good team and you get ousted in the second round, you know, uh, you know, sometimes management feels like, hey, we got to bring in somebody, you know what I mean, to get us over the hump. And, you know, I really, really wanted to re-sign with the Magic. You know, um, I felt like, you know, I was the emotional leader of that team. Um, I felt like, you know what I mean, um, you know, I had found a home with that team. I enjoyed playing in Orlando. Um, but at the time, they felt like they needed to go for a more pure point guard. So they decided to go with Duhon. So, I, you know, that hurts. Um, but it always happens like that. You know, teams don't necessarily have loyalty to players, but players are expected to have loyalty to teams. And that's mm-hmm. a tough place to be in. <laughs> You you also during that stretch had your famous fight with Ray Allen when he's a member of the oh, Sonics. Yeah, yeah you end up getting yeah you end up getting five game suspension. Uh, Ray Allen gets gets three games. What do you remember about that night? Take take me back to that to that night. Well, I remember you know I was fresh off an injury, so that was my first game back. I didn't necessarily play on that road trip. And I remember that night, Ray was getting fouled all over the place. You know, I think Stacey Ogman hit him in the face. Dwight hit him with an elbow. And so, um, you know, I, I, didn't, I wasn't conscious of that. I was just playing basketball. And I guess he got tangled up. Ray hit me with an elbow. I tackled him. We got, you know, we got into the fight. And, you know, we get to get an opportunity to run off the court. And, 
you know, me, I just, I, I couldn't let it go. So I decided to turn, you know, meet him at his locker room and, you know what I mean? You ain't getting past security in the back, baby. NBA security is fantastic. Um, but that got me the extra two games. Uh, that cost me around 180 grand. Um, you know, but look, at the end of the day, you know, Ray and I made up. We're friends. We became teammates later in life. And we can look back on it and laugh. I feel like you know a guy better when you fight him. So <laughs> I know Ray Allen pretty well. Ray's a great man. Uh, it, it's it's great video for anybody that wants to check it out on, on YouTube. With, so with NBA security being that tough, you make the push towards the locker room. Are you thinking, I'm going to get a chance to go uh, a little further with this guy? Or you know people are going to be holding you back at that point? No, 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 no. That wasn't, that wasn't for sure. Like, you know, look, at the end of the day, like when you get in a basketball fight, you really can't knuckle up. You can't really get a good square, square uh, head up fade. And so, um, you know, I didn't get that opportunity on the court, so I wanted to get that opportunity in the back. You know, <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was still the hood in me. Thank God I, I grew from that place. Well, I, I have to say one thing about uh, about watching you over the course of your career as as a guy who grew up outside of Philly. The one thing we were taught to respect is above all else in guards is toughness. You know, Jameer yeah. Nelson, obviously being a Chester yeah. kid, and you played with yeah. him. And the one thing that people yeah. will always say about Keon Dooling is you, you you may have appeared skinny compared to some of those other guys in the league, but no one could ever question your toughness. Yeah, 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 for sure. I always prided myself on, you know, being tough. I come from a tough environment, you know. I come from um, a great family, man. My family was so loving, so caring. Um, but, man, we had to fight, claw, scratch for everything that we had, you know. And so, um, you know, I take a lot of pride in my surname. Even though we, I can only trace it back a couple of generations, like, you know, they always told us that, you know, hey, listen, we're doing, you know what I mean? We're hard workers, we're hard workers, we're men of integrity, you know what I mean, we're men who, you know, love the Lord, um, protect our family, work hard, and I always, you know, um, my dad put that in me, his father put that in him, and so I'm doing the same with my family. Um, The thing is that, you know, I'm teaching my son that you don't necessarily have to fight your battles, you know, physically, you know, you have to be just as tough and uh, mentally and spiritually and emotionally in order to have success on this planet, too, so... Hopefully we're evolving as a family. For sure. For sure sounds like it. Uh, you had to deal with the root tough situation after you left the Magic. You go to the Nets in 2009, 2010. And, and it's, it's the worst because as, as a member of the media, I've covered this and was working on SportsCenter at the time. And it became, you know, the nightly joke and how we were going to do the highlights and all. You guys are professionals having to live through this every day becoming a laughing stock as you're winning 12 games. And you're a supremely talented NBA player. There's some very good NBA players on that team. But the way things were working out, partly because, you know, of a multitude of, of circumstances. I mean, Lawrence Frank goes 0-16. Uh, Tom Barisi goes 0-2. Keegan Vandeway 12-52. What was that year like for you? Oh, uh, man, you know, I – uh, it was it was it was a lot of great life lessons to be learned in a situation. Um, you learn a lot about yourself, you know, when you go through adverse times. And um, I was able to remain a professional. I was able to remain a mentor. I was able to continue to you know come to work every day, dressed apart. Um, I was able to bring my work ethic every day. So I know I can always you know um, you know do my job even in a toxic environment. Um, 
But I also learned that, you know, sometimes, you know, um, you know, uh, the NBA isn't all about winning. Sometimes it's about retooling, rebuilding, putting yourself in position for the future. I'm just glad that the Nets didn't have much success, you know, from all their tanking. You know, then when they started spending money, they still didn't have success. So it wasn't just, you know what I mean, um, uh, uh, the players. Um, it was the organization at the end of the day. You know, they didn't do a good enough job of, um, you know, being competitive at the end of the day. So um, the team that was assembled when we won 12 games that season, you know, was a very bad team. <laughs> you know, we had mm-hmm. we had no superstar players, um, no continuity. Um, it was a recipe for failure, and that's what it was designed to do. But they had a lot of cap space, had a lot of picks, and, you know what I mean, unfortunately it didn't work out for them. But, you know, look, it, at the end of the day, it was kind of similar to the 76ers and them retooling and repositioning themselves and playing the rules, um, you know, to potentially make a move down the road. So hopefully they can get to that part. I, I was going to ask you about that because – as a guy who's been in that situation, a player who's had to endure, endure that kind of year, there's a lot of debate about whether what the Sixers are doing are, is right by the fans. You know, a lot of debate for the people that I know that are that are Sixers fans as to whether what Sam Hinkie is building in Philadelphia and trying to build for the future, if it's the right way to go about it. What's your take on what the Sixers are doing right now? Well, you know, I don't like it. You know, I think it uh, has halted the development of some of the younger guys, you know, by not having talented players and good players around them so they can't have that vision for work ethic and what it takes to be successful. Um, I don't like it because Philadelphia has great fans and they deserve better. Um, I don't like it because I don't even think Sam Hinkie will probably last to see the rebuilding process (laughs) because it's it's been that, you know, bad for them, you know. But at the end of the day, some guys, you know, get an opportunity to, you know what I mean, um, execute roles. And I think Sam Hinkie is just, you know, being an extension of ownership. I think ownership has made a conscious decision to not spend and to not, you know what I mean, do well and to try and maybe, you know, gather some assets through the draft. But um, I think with the new CBA, I think they're going to have to spend sooner or later. Um, and so I think that will change. But, you know, it's it's not good for the game. You know, it's not good for Philadelphia fans. They love ball in the area, you know. It's not mm-hmm. cool. How much do you find that guys pick up bad habits when they're playing on losing teams? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Just like winning is something that is habitual, so is losing. And it's loser ways, you know what I mean? It's not paying attention to detail. It's not you know, uh, given the effort, it's a cultural thing. And that could, that, that it takes a while to get away from that stigma. Even the fans, you know, anticipate, you know, a loss, even if they're playing good, it's like, you know, almost because you're so used to losing. Guys become just looking at their, their stats. Is that, is that what that turned into that year? No, no, guys weren't good enough to get stats. <laughs> like we didn't have good players that year. You know, we did not have good players that year. So even if guys were going for it, like, you know, um, they just weren't good enough to get numbers. It just is what it is. Well, you ended up playing with the Bucks after that, and then you go on to the Celtics. That Celtics team you played on did have some guys that were capable of getting some some numbers. What was your experience like playing with uh, the, the big three there, Pierce, Garnett, and, and Ray Allen? Yeah. yeah, it was unbelievable. You know, um, like I, I always equate it, you know, it was my 12th year in the league when I played with the Celtics, and I always equate that to, like, my senior year of high school. 
You know, it was just that magnificent. You have the prom, you have the homecoming, you have grad night. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's like, you know, the peak of your educational, you know what I'm saying, like, you know, uh, moments. And so um, it was great, man. I, one of my goals was to try and beat Paul Pierce to the gym in the morning. And needless to say, I never beat him to the gym. That guy was always there way before everybody. Um, I got to see Ray Allen in the work, in the you know, and how diligent he is with his body and his diet and his commitment to the game. I got to see KG and how – um, how committed he is to his craft, how he's always going to do the same thing at the same time, the same way every practice, every game, the way he warms up. He's a creature of habit, so he does, like, the same thing. It's crazy, um, the attention to detail and how great these men are at their craft. And then to have Rondo, somebody who is so misunderstood by the masses, um, he's ended up being one of my best friends on the planet. I just enjoyed that, you know, um, so much. My locker was right next to him. And then to have Doc Rivers to learn from, you know, I'm a coach at heart at the end of the day, you know, and I'm a coach before I become one, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, you know, because that's very important. You don't have to wait till somebody hires you to become that. And Doc just had it all figured out. Man. He was just awesome to the third power. Awesome to the third power. I really enjoy playing with uh, playing for Dot. Rondo, you said he's misunderstood. I've read stories about how brilliant he is, the photographic memory that he has, and then we see this other side of him that, you know, Mavericks, playoffs, people accusing him of giving up on the team and all. Can you tell me how how you feel like he's misunderstood? Um yeah, I think, you know, I think he's comfortable with being misunderstood. You know, I don't think he's in it, you know, to please people, per se. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you ask all his teammates about him, you know, he's the guy who invites us over to his house. He's the guy, you know what I mean, who we go out to eat with on the road. He's the guy who's going to, you know what I mean, like be with, you know, uh, you know, be with the regular guys, you know, like, mm-hmm. not like most superstars. And as far as the Dallas situation, you can judge him off that or you can, you know, and, and say that he quit on the team or you can judge him off the, you know, the Boston situation when his arm gets dislocated and he plays through that pain. Look, at the end of the day, I won't run through a wall for each and every one of the coaches that I played for. I told you there's two coaches I'll run through a wall for. And I don't think that Rondo will run through a wall for Rick Carlisle, but I think he would for Doc Rivers. You can put that on him. Or you can, you know, but you also have to say that, hey, listen, maybe, you know, he came into the team late. Maybe he was pushing himself through injuries. And, you know what I mean, maybe, you know, because he wasn't getting the minutes and all that, you know, maybe he didn't feel like, you know, it was a free agency year. I'm just speculating, but maybe he felt like it wasn't worth the push. I hear you. I hear you. Do you, do you think Rondo still has a lot left in the tank? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Of course. Of course. Of course. Before, uh, before he got traded, he was leading the whole NBA in assists. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a guy who makes players around him better. And that's a so, rare skill, to make players around you better. So you, we can all expect some huge things from Rondo this year then? Well, I, I do. I do believe he's motivated. I do believe he's hungry. And I do believe he'll have a great season. I think the Kings are much improved. And I think he'll be very, very productive this year. You're one of the rare players that's retired multiple times from from the NBA. You make your triumphant comeback with the Grizzlies and play for Lionel Hollins in an interesting uh, NBA season for you. You play seven games in the regular season for the 2012-2013 Grizzlies, but then 14 in the playoffs. 
and you guys go all the way to the Western Conference Finals before falling to the Spurs, but you had beaten the Thunder and the Clippers. What do you recall about about that final season? Uh, you know what? Um, you know, that was a very, very bad NBA experience for me hmm. um, because I've always been a continuity guy. I've always been a, a guy to kind of take the personality of the team. And because I came in so late, you know what I mean, I really wasn't a part of it. And so that was very hard for me. You know, for the first time in my life, I was a social outcast on the team. And so that was a that was a difficult transition for me. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I had to, you know, suck that part up uh, about it. And, you know, I, I just tried to do my job. I was able to crack the rotation, um, even though I didn't train that whole season. So I wasn't really prepared to play basketball, but I got myself in shape. And I wanted to continue playing basketball. Um, but I didn't get a call the next year. And so I, I could not, you know, I didn't like being in a position to have to wait for somebody to tell me to work. So I decided to retire and, you know, move on to, to what's next in life. Before we get to what's next in life, I, I asked uh, our last guest, Dave McMiniman, on the podcast, just went over a couple guys and asked him to tell me something I didn't know. Just give me a sentence or two if you could. I just want to throw out a couple names for you. Something the average person wouldn't know about the following guys. Just quick hitting. You you ready for this? Okay. All right. Elton Brand. Brilliant. Adam Silver. Wow. Um, you know, he's the right person at the right time in the right league for the job. Um, I am such a big fan of, of Adam Silver. I think he really understands and respects the players. Um, but I also think that he's misunderstood because he's a lot tougher than people give him credit for. Donald Sterling. Donald Sterling is uh, a brilliant businessman. Donald Sterling um, has some bigot uh, ideologies, um, but Donald Sterling also is very layered. And so he's done some good and he's done so some bad. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, he brought basketball. He brought Clipper basketball to L.A. and he'll be, you know, appreciated for that. Um, I think Donald Sterling did a great job of, of, of um, you know, uh, uh, well, I don't, how do I say it? <sighs> Let's just say that's enough for Donald Sterling. That's more than enough for Donald Sterling, I think. <laughs> uh, Alonzo Mourning. Alonzo Mourning, um, courageous, tough, serious. I, I, I like to say this, you know, um, Alonzo Mourning, not only takes, you know, the game of basketball serious, but he takes the game of life serious. You know, he's a very inspirational man, and I'm I'm very proud to have played with him. Dwayne Wade. Dwayne Wade, the Flash. He is awesome, remarkable, athletic, tough. Um, he's been battle-tested. He's a great man. Dwight Howard. Dwight Howard is uh, extremely personable, extremely funny. Um, but I also still think Dwight has room to grow. And finally, Steve Francis. Steve Francis is, um, in my opinion, um, somebody who helped revolutionize the game. He was one of those six three, six four guys who, uh, you know, would would have been considered a tweener earlier in the NBA. But um, you know, he was fantastic. He was a great teammate. Um, he was an awesome player, extremely explosive. Um, and I'm I'm praying for Steve because, you know, I've seen some pictures of him recently, and he's not looking like the old Steve Francis that I know and love and remember. So I'm praying for him that he can, you know, really 
recapture that glory. And can you tell me about your life right now? Yeah, my life is pretty simple, man. Um, you know, God, family, and work. You know, I work for the NBA Players Association. I train players um, in Orange County. Um, I wrote a book. I'm about uh, 1,500 copies away from being a bestseller, so I'm excited about that. Um, I'm an advocate for sexual abuse. I'm an advocate for mental wellness, and that's pretty much Keon Doolin in a nutshell. I'm just excited to have spoken to you, not just for all the great stories you have, but you really are an inspiration to so many people, and uh, it's really been a pleasure to speak to you. And I think people need to go out, get the book, What's Doing You, How I Overcame Abuse and Learned to Lead in the NBA. You can get that on Amazon. Yeah, or iTunes. Yeah, definitely reach out for me. You know, I haven't been very successful in getting people to um, acknowledge sexual abuse. Um, people don't want to really talk about it, but I am. And so, you know what I mean? Whether I get support or not, that's not going to deter me from you know, helping people heal. And that's what I'm here to do. And um, if you want to support the foundation, please, we welcome it. Um, we, do, we do a lot of work. We do a lot of outreach. And um, I'm very proud to have helped people heal. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep fighting the good fight. Well, that's the Respect Foundation, at Respect FDN. Listen, once again, I am very, very thankful to have you on. appreciate all the time that you gave me. And, uh, and uh, good luck with all the rest of your endeavors. I know we're only seeing the beginning of you and uh, I, I, I want to see you coaching an NBA sideline. You, that's going to be happening soon, right? That's the goal. That's the goal. You know, um, that's the goal. Listen, there's two, you know, I'm, I'm one of those guys who's going to work my tail off and, and just continue to put myself in position, whether that happens or not, you know what I mean? I'll still be fulfilled, but yeah, that's definitely my goal. That's my dream. I think that's where I can have the biggest impact on our players. Well, we need to speak to Josh Kroenke and uh, some of his cronies there and uh, make hey, sure that you are, you're doing it. Hey, hey, let's do it. Let's do it. Thank you so much. So that'll do it for Keon Dueling. Again, support the book, What's Driving You? How I Overcame Abuse and Learned to Lead in the NBA on iTunes, on Amazon, and reach out to him on Twitter. Uh, we need to support him. It's a very important cause, and I'm um, – so glad that he has the courage to say all the things that he has to say. Uh, that'll do it for us here on the Great Point Podcast. Thank you so much to everyone for listening and supporting. This thing is starting to grow. It's starting to get where I envision that we can get. And there's so much more that we're able to do here. And one last thing, I got married this week. Caitlin, my wife, I love you. And I'm thrilled to spend the rest of my life with you. Also want to thank Yao G's, who provides the intro music to the podcast. Catch him at Yao G's. Also look for his stuff on iTunes. Find us on Twitter at Great Point Pod. Find me, Adam Stanko, on Twitter at Naismith Lives. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.